1: Welcome to the Nerd Party. Hi, this is Henry Gilra, co-executive producer of Star Wars Rebels. You're listening to Aggressive Negotiations.
0: Hello and welcome, everyone, to a very special episode of Aggressive Negotiations. I am one of the hosts here, Matthew Rushing, as always. And um, unfortunately, this week, because of when we did this interview, uh, John Mills was not able to be here. But we're very excited to bring this to you. I think it's going to be very... uh, It's so exciting, guys. uh, We've got Paul Duncan here, author of The Star Wars Archives... Which has been out now for a little while, um, but something I finally was able to get my hands on and read. And now, I'm so excited to welcome him to the show. Uh, before we do that, just wanted to remind you of course, you can find us all over the place, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're over on Apple Podcasts, please do hit us up with a star rating review. You can find us on Twitter, of course, at The Jedi Masters, which is for the show. Uh, you can also find the whole network at Join Nerd Party on Twitter. Uh, you can find us online at TheNerdParty.com. Uh, we're also on Facebook at slash TheNerdParty. And if you would like, you can send us an email over at slash contact, choose a show, choose aggressive negotiations. Then I'll come to John and I. Now, we have had some emails in the bag. We are so sorry we have not been able to get to those. It has been very crazy uh, for us recently behind the scenes. And so we are promising to get to those emails soon. And we'll probably actually just devote a whole show to that. So keep those coming and uh, we'll have that mailbag episode for you soon. Now, I think it's really just time to dive into our interview with Paul. Well, on this May the 4th, as we're recording, I'm very excited to welcome um, the one and only Paul Duncan. And uh, if you were at uh, Star Wars Celebration, uh, you may know um, that Paul has written a book called The Star Wars Archives, which uh, covers the original trilogy. Now... um, Paul, before we dive into that book, you know, you announced uh, during Star Wars Celebration that you're also going to be doing a prequel version of this book, which I literally did a happy dance when I heard
1: this. Well, so did I when, when I got the to go ahead to to do it because it, when I'd finished this book, um, you know, with four to six, I thought, well, I have to do one to three as well. <laughs> you know, the, the job is only half yes. done. Um so I was very 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 happy and I was even happier that I could announce it at celebration.
0: So I do have one question because um one of the things that I love about uh this this uh this first volume is that it does contain some things that might be a little bit unexpected. You cover uh not in as much detail, but you do cover um the things like the holiday special and the droids and ewoks cartoons and caravan of courage and those kind of things. So, um, you know, with the the, the prequel trilogy, will we cover it all um any mention of the special editions, which, you know, led George to want to really dive into the prequels? Or will we cover the Clone Wars at all?
1: Well, um, oh, right, you're asking me to do the the, the new stuff first. Okay, so. Um, yeah. Yes,
0: yes. I just I thought it might be kind of a fun way to jump back in. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um, yes. Yeah, so, um, so what I would like to do is um, the special editions and the fs uh, one to 3 i think those are the things that uh, for me are, okay. are the important things because special editions is really about the development of technology and whether it you know this digital technology can be done um before going into the the movies full ball so um so that's what i want to concentrate on and i want to give as much space as possible to this to these movies because they are they Absolutely. are enormous undertakings, and the uh, the materials I found the visual materials are so so rich. Uh, like for X, four, five, and six, I, I had so much material that I thought a six hundred and five, six hundred and four page book was far too small. Um, I, I I could do that on each of the films, and that's what I I, I still feel you know for. One you know, once one to six could all have six hundred and four page books done on them very, very easily.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah. So so that was my um uh, yeah. So there was tons and tons of material. I want to share as much of it as possible
0: with you. One of the things that really excited me about that project is the fact that, you know, the the prequels have never been given that treatment, you know. Um Rensler did the making of of books for the original trilogy, but um, you know we never got that sort of detail really for the prequels, and so the fact um, you'll get you know George here on the record with the prequels and really allow him the uh, the space to um, in his own words e- explain all of this, I think, is going to be fantastic because what you've done here with the um, the original trilogy, I think, is just incredible. Now you've done um other archive books i mean you did the james bond archives you've done the charlie chaplin archives you've done a lot of books revolving around film and so uh, i was very in, in, impressed looking at your bibliography how did the star wars archives come about for you uh,
1: well originally Tashin have uh, had done a, a deal with walt disney to do some books uh, some archives books on Walt Disney subjects, um, and uh, a couple of which have already been published on Mickey Mouse, Walt, the early Walt Disney animated movies, and on Disneyland. Um, and as part of that, we thought, well, it would be a good idea to do something related to Lucasfilm, um, and it was just basically, um, it was just a natural progression to that. I mean, I have. As you say, I've worked on many, many books uh, where I go into archives around the world. Stockholm for Ingmar Bergman, um, uh, Madrid for Pedro Almodovar, Uh, for Michael Mann I went into his archives in Los Angeles, Um, Charlie Chaplin in Montreux and uh, Paris, Uh, James Bond, uh, Top secret location in London. I can't possibly reveal where those, uh, those are. <laughs> uh, On pain yes. of death. <laughs> um, uh, so so I'm used to going to archives and to and to finding out what's there. And one of the things you find out about archives is that if, if you go in with preconceived ideas of what you want to find, you're never going to find them. Uh, um, the first day I went into the James Bond archive, I found uh, this this memo from Cubby Broccoli, uh, the producer, uh, sending back to uh, David Picker from United Art Artists, saying, "Oh, could you pick up um, some white bikinis at Saks Fifth Avenue and and send it to us in Jamaica?" <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, great. So, so you never know. I didn't go looking for that. But I found it that first day. And it's it's like that with, with, with Star Wars. Now you, you just don't know when you go into an archive what you're going to find. Sometimes you just find lots and lots of very confusing paperwork uh, with all these enigmatic codes and numbers and names. Uh, and you just don't have a clue what you're looking at. And um, that's very much what happened to me on Star Wars going into the archives. There are um, five uh, holocrons, uh, as I call them, five different archives that you can go, uh, that I had access to in order to uh, uh, to look through. So there's archives with uh, storyboards and concept art, there are archives with uh, documentation um with uh, photography um you know so there are all these different archives that i had to look through uh, and a lot of it i just didn't understand even though i knew star wars they were talking about um uh, things beginning with x to be an x there would be a long number about 11 characters beginning with x and i didn't have a clue what it meant it was only later that i realized that these were these were the individual numbers of each uh, visual effect shot, yeah yeah you know, oh, wow. so, you, so you never know what you're going to find and it's a matter of going in, absorbing everything that you get uh, and then decoding it um, so that I can in- interpret it and um, put it in chronological order uh, and interpret it, and then present that information to you in a way that is that is readable and understandable yeah see
0: so one quick caveat i my other podcast is called the 602 club and we've covered all of the james bond movies um and so seeing the fact that you did the James Bond book, um, and there is a, uh, a new version that they have out, it's it's less expensive. it's it's 70 dollars. I think it's also a smaller book, but I was like, "Oh, I need to get this because I, lo- I love that series." so and, and getting those kind of tidbits out of it would be phenomenal. So uh, plug for that book, go check it out. Um, now, that's the thing that I was so impressed with by your work so. You're talking about going to the archives, and, and I know Lucasfilm is is so good with its, with its archives. You know, um, George was very keen to make sure that he saved all of this stuff, you know, whether it was, you know, drawings and all these things. So as you're going through all this, um, and like you mentioned earlier, you could have done an entire 600-page book on, you know, each of the original trilogy movies. How do you pick what's going to be in the book uh, and what you leave out, because that seems like a phenomenally difficult process. Like that, it would hurt sometimes. Some of the things you might have you, to leave you out. You cannot
1: believe how much it hurts. <laughs> um, because uh, it's even since I've since the book is published, I, I have people contacting me asking me about, oh, do you know about this, that, and the other? Because it, it's not in the book, or there was a hint of something that was in the book. Mm. And I say, sure, I've got all that information, but it's not part of the story. Yeah. So what what the thing is that having information is one thing. Um, but you have to be able to tell a story and to find the story. So my my problem was what is the story that I'm going to tell you? Um because I could just show you picture after picture, but it gets boring after a while. Um so what I want to do is that I want to and uh, make sure that you get from the beginning to the end of the book um, by trying to find a compelling narrative. Now, after about, I started, first day was June 1st, 2016, which is the first day I was actually in the archives looking through materials. Uh, and wow. uh, I basically spent a year going through all the different archives. And um, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of documents, photographs, et cetera. But I didn't know what the story was. I didn't know what the story was that I wanted to tell you. Um, And then it it struck me um, that really what I was interested in was what George Lucas had to say or think about the process of making these movies. And I started looking at all the other books that have been done, and really you don't you don't really get his point of view. What, what is it like to look over his shoulder, to stand on his shoulder, like a pork-eyes view, you know, um, looking over his shoulder as he's walking through uh, and filming, as he's going through ILM, uh, as he's editing, uh, as he's writing, what, what is that? what is that like? What is he thinking? What is he feeling? Why is he making those decisions? And once that clicked in my mind, it was then, yes, that's the story. That's the thing I want to know. That's the real deep down, um, that the story I hadn't heard and I wanted to hear. So I tried to find that story. And to do that, I had to get um, George's permission. Now, luckily, um, with all that time that I spent uh, on Skywalker Ranch and at the Presidio looking through all the archives, People got to to know about me and hear about me, and I met lots of people. And um, and George had given me access to his archives, uh, his personal archives uh, on the ranch. Um, and so my next step was to hope and pray that he would allow me to to talk with him. You know, to to express uh, all these things I wanted to know. Now, obviously. He's done hundreds of interviews already. And there are lots of, I was finding production interviews with him uh, and with the rest of the, the cast and crew. And um, and there's lots of things that I could glean from there um, that I could use. Uh, but there were lots of questions that I just didn't have the answers to. Uh, and luckily, he agreed to, to be interviewed uh, for the book, specifically to answer those sort of questions. So like, I, uh, I had an argument with him. I'm sorry to say this, but I did. That's um, awesome. <laughs> and, uh, see, because what happens is that, um, people, um, they connect things to, to, to certain events when they're retelling stories. So, um, mm-hmm. so okay. what happened was I wanted to find out when the Millennium Falcon was created, the Millennium Falcon we know now, you know, which right, the Hamburg. Right. Um, and uh, so obviously it started off as a pirate ship. It was designed by Colin Cantwell. It was um, uh, redesigned by the model makers. And uh, it was made over many months. Uh, and then George, um, when he was in the UK in 75, He saw this new television program, Space 1999, which had just come out. uh, I think it was September, August, September 75. He just saw it and he realized that, you know, his pirate ship looked, you know, similar to their Eagle Transporter. And he was over in England and on the plane back, he stopped off in uh, New York in order to cast, uh, do some casting auditions. And he met Jodie Foster and Christopher Walken for Princess Leia and Han Solo, uh, which you can imagine what a different movie that could have been. Uh,
0: oh man, I'm just imagining
1: his his <laughs> cadence yeah. for Solo. Yeah. Just it cracks yeah.
0: me up. <laughs>
1: I, I, I've got a bad feeling about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so uh, and then George went to L.A. to uh, ILM, and um, and on the on the trip he realized he had to come up with a different pirate ship. And that's when he came up with the um, the hamburger shape, the flying saucer. That's really what he wanted, the flying saucer. And um, and he, he spent a day with um, uh, Joe Johnston. Joe Johnston did sketches. And then they were, George then went off and he, he was auditioning um, in LA, all right? So So, but when was that? Right. How how do you find that out? Because there are no dates on uh, on the sketches, the Joe Johnson sketches. So, Mm. uh, so I thought, well, follow the money. Uh, Looking through all the documents, I'd found these uh, bookkeeping on uh, on the models. You know where they they list. Okay, we bought this on such and such a day for this model. Yeah. So I went through and I found that the earliest was um, the week ending December sixth, nineteen seventy five, uh, and that was the so that's the first um, the first week when the Millennium Falcon pirate ship model
0: uh, wow. was actually
1: yeah. was actually made. So that meant that uh, I could I could talk. George sort of remembered one part of it and I found another part of it and uh, and we sort of argued about it but then when I came up with the money you know and actually say look this is these were the actual dates you know we we realized that you know we'd narrowed it down we'd actually found um uh, the answer right so there were things like that like the other thing was um, when did George go for, when did he ask for the rights for Flash Gordon? Right, Because all the books, nobody had ever said when. Um, so I had a look and it was when he had gone to United Artists, I asked George about this and he said when he'd gone to David Picker in order to, um, uh, uh, you know, to try and get uh, some rights before he went on to Um, uh, Cannes Film Festival to show THX 1138 that's when he'd gone to see King Features and asked them about Flash Gordon and they said no you know Mm -hmm. and their terms weren't right so at that point even though he knew he wanted to do a space opera he knew he wanted to do Flash Gordon at the same time he knew he couldn't do it so he had to come up with another way. so if you like that became the origin of Star Wars when he had to think of it as his own story Mm. yeah so so these are the sort of things that um you know i wanted clarification uh with george um, you know just from a um dates and what he was thinking uh, etc
0: you're you're doing the thing that i think has has always been my dream you know i being a you know a podcaster my thought was how cool it would be to sit down with George Lucas and create a series where you just sat down and, and you talked through all of these things with him, because there is so much, I think, like you said, you know, you've, we've had other making of books, but to make this about George and his experience, um, and seeing Star Wars then through his eyes, I think is such a unique point of view to get. Because and, and which seems strange, but a lot of times I feel like George Lucas actually gets lost sometimes in those those books um, in the sense that, you know, he's he is the main character in all of this. And so what was it like to sit down then and be able to ask him any question and allow him just to expound to his heart's desire? Uh,
1: well, it was it was a dream job, wasn't it? Because um, it, when you got George going on the subject um, because what i mean george has answered many of these questions time and time again so the my um my task if you like uh, was to make it interesting for him so to ask him things that maybe um other people haven't asked or to approach things in a different way and one of the reasons why he agreed uh, to do the talk is that um uh, I do a chapter, the first chapter, was all about his uh, early life, um, him basically um, going to college, and that's where he fell in love with anthropology, uh, and that's where he first read Joseph Campbell, Hero with a Thousand Faces. Uh, And then he went to USC, uh, which is where he discovered that he had an aptitude for storytelling uh, in using films. Uh, editing and cameras. Um, so, if you like, um, the interest in anthropology um, is, is really what he's most interested in, uh, and the uh, and his facility for telling stories through through cinema through the moving image is a talent he discovered. Yeah, and if you like, THX one one three eight, and then uh, is is him experimenting with that. And then American Graffiti, which is you know, a more personal film, if you like, based on his uh, his own experiences, um, he realised that was the first time he realised he could actually reach people, reach people. Um, so Star Wars becomes a, an extension of all of that, and that's why I have that that mm. that chapter there. And then I, realising this um, intuitively first, and then. Um, and then backtracking in terms of telling the story and actually writing it out, I realized that George is really he's interested in this anthropology and that's what um, that's what I needed to talk to him about. So I needed to talk to mm, to him yeah. about those characters, uh, Luke, Lear, Han, um, Darth Vader and the Emperor, in those terms, in those Joseph Campbell terms and so that was my if you like my pitch to him let's let's talk about these mythological characters and what they mean um, um uh psychologically their underlying uh, psychology uh, and the story or the message he's trying to get across using those characters and how he worked that out so um so the thing to me that became most interesting was seeing all the different drafts of his scripts and to see how the characters uh, are all interchangeable um, so that the names or the ages or the gender are all completely fluid uh, in all the early drafts. Uh, But you see that there are certain psychological moments that remain constant or um, he's trying to go for them but they don't quite work. So he's got this puzzle with all these pieces and they're not quite fitting. So what he's doing is he keeps moving them around until he finds pieces that fit, that fit psychologically and also fit um, uh, in terms of plot uh, so that the plot moves forward and remains uh, interesting and compelling. So, So if you like, this was what I... Um, what I was finding in talking with George. I was finding that uh, here is a a person who sort of knows what he wants and is trying to find uh, it. And when he finds it, he knows it. And that becomes a solid point. And then he moves everything else around it. Uh, and then in the actual process, not just of writing, but of making the movie, it's exactly the same. So when he's working with Ralph McQuarrie, and with Joe Johnson, uh, and Nilo rodis Jimero, uh, and uh, in terms of concept art, he's doing exactly the same thing. He will make a suggestion, they will come back, You know, they will have a week or two weeks to do whatever they want, but based on what he said. And then they'll come back with all these ideas, some of them outrageous, some of them exactly what he says you know, and, and everything in between. And he'll go through and he'll mark up and he'll comment on those that feel right, feel in the right direction. And then they go off and do the same for another week or two weeks. And it, so it becomes an iterative process. So so he's always searching and finding um, and, uh, and refining uh, everything on an iterative basis. So when people say and um, they have a vision. It doesn't mean that they have an exact end point. It's that they have an idea, right? And they need to go towards that light uh, at the end of the tunnel, right? But they don't know how to get there. And everybody else, this whole community of 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 very creative people, whether it's John Barry or John Dykstra, Richard Edlund, Dennis Murin, all of these people, um, you know, Stuart Freebold. I mean, all the great creative people that are involved in, uh, and then there's the actors as well. All of those are contributing in order to come towards that end vision. And George is, if you like, guiding them gently uh, in order to to achieve that. So, if you like that initial impulse, that anthropology um, that he's uh, that George is interested in, I was trying to get to that beginning part so that it made that whole journey more meaningful. I think that's
0: the something that for me that was really fascinating to see is that, um, you know, I think... So, I don't know that George gets enough credit for um, his genius in hiring because every person that he hires for Star Wars... Is able to find a way to contribute somehow that makes the whole better, um, and and not only that, but George seems to have found the people in Hollywood that are truly open to collaborating. And and George is the, you know, the the head. You know, he he's the one through which everything else flows. But but these other people are are so important to the process as he is. And and George's humility in allowing. Other people to be creative and inspiring that creativity, um, to me was one of the most fascinating parts of, of this book because there is there is something special about Lucasfilm under George that I don't think has existed, if ever, in in Hollywood in the way that it does when George is running Lucasfilm.
1: Yeah, I think the um if you like, the vibe on Skywalker Ranch um which I had time to absorb, if you like, while I was there, was that this is a very, very creative place, and people have the freedom to express their creativity. You you don't feel that the if you, if you like everybody is enabling everybody else to do their very best, and uh, and this is uh, this comes from the top, from the top down. Obviously, George, you know, it doesn't own um, uh, Lucasfilm or, or, you know, a- any more, etc. But, um, but this very much is the feeling that I got, um, both still there at the Skywalker Ranch, and with um, people who historically had been uh, been around. Is that George? Is a uh, uh, is a loving and loyal um, person. Um, and he's he's very giving and he's very generous he's very straightforward um and uh, and that um from the top um it, it generates a certain feeling and a certain attitude um to everybody else in in the uh, uh, in the company so um so meeting George, you see that he's very self-effacing you know he's got a very dry sense of humor he doesn't um he doesn't like um praise um uh, you know he sort of deflects it with humor etc and um, but he has done uh, extraordinary work but he's still he's still like that he's always been like that and he's he's still like that and he's um uh, he does a lot of work um and always has for charity there's never been a feeling that anything that he's done has been for himself in order to make himself um you know bigger or more powerful or he's he's not he doesn't acquire things for that reason he only he puts money into projects in order to advance um technology or advance understanding um uh, in order to make things better. He doesn't do things in order to make money per se. It's just some of the things he does do generate money. So um so I forget what your original question was, but but my feeling is that through it all, this is a very still down to earth guy, um uh, very natural, um very private, very self effacing. But uh, a really keen sense of humor and uh, and I tried to include that in the book um uh, you know there, there are certain comments um that that he made throughout the book and there's certainly be like um sentimental amount of repartee going back and forth between us um that I left in the dialogue uh, in order to show the sort of person he is you know that he does have a sense of humor as well.
0: Yeah, I think that was one of my favorite moments early in the book when you're you're interviewing George and he calls himself uh, a self-righteous son of a bitch, you know, yeah. um, which is is such a wonderful. I mean, that's that's George in, encapsulated right there. His self-effacing humor, his ability to not make himself better than he should be, um, his humility in that, and you know, I think that's one of the things that I really loved about reading this book is that. You know, um, when you see George um, being willing to take credit for the, where credit is due, where he thinks it's it's him, but then him, you know, lavishing the the praise that he does on everybody else involved on it, whether it's, you know, John Williams or, uh, you know, whether it's Joe Johnston or whether right. it's, you know, Kirsch or Marquand or I mean, anybody else that he can put praise on, he will because he's not as comfortable taking that on himself and 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 I think that's again that's something that's so rare in Hollywood especially when you think about what George created which was a empire built on Star Wars and you know Indiana Jones and all of these things that w- to which we all love and yet you still have this guy who is reticent to take praise on himself for what he helped create which is just I mean, it's
1: it's unique. Well, I think one of the things that uh, George does is he um, he pushes people because the, what he has in his head is so much more than what people can physically create. So, uh, so the whole thing of him being—I uh, mean, everybody was so amazed when Star Wars came out in '77. Um, they'd never seen anything like it. But to George, it was a disappointment because what was in his head was far more polished, advanced. Um, If if you think about it, the only talking creatures that you got um, in the first Star Wars were uh, Greedo um, and uh, and Chewbacca, you know, and uh, R2-D2, you know, in terms... But with actual mouth movements, it's Chewbacca and Greedo, you know. And there's even there's a there's a shot in the in the book, which which I love, of George putting some uh, vaseline on Greedo's mouth, so that so that the um, the camera can catch a little bit of light on the mouth in order to accentuate the movement. Yeah. Um. So this is how, you know. And if you think about it, Yoda. Right, he wanted Yoda to be running around, scuttling around, um, uh, like a little, um, uh, a little mad character, scuttling around the uh, the jungle planet. Um, but he couldn't, he, he couldn't show him walking or moving hardly at all, just a couple of steps. So, um, so these are the restrictions that George had all the way through, g- going through. So. He had, there was always a matter of finding a way around the problem, around the technology. Uh, R2D2 not being able to move um, in Tunisia uh, because they got so much interference from other radio bands. Uh, and so R2D2 and some of the other um, uh, uh, droids uh, kept acting Acting up or not moving because they were getting radio interference, you know. So, all of this um, was a frustrating frustration for George, and it was below what his expectation was um, from his vision. So, what he was doing was he was constantly pushing people to think outside the envelope to develop technology and ideas in order to represent um, what his vision was. Uh, and all of these people around him, they took on the challenge. Um, they were—he found so many great people. Some from um, in the UK, they were, uh, you know, people like uh, John Steers and John Barry um, and uh, Stuart Freeborn. Uh, these were all established, and John Mollo as well, uh, established and, and very creative people. Um, uh working within the uk film industry uh, in america for ilm most of virtually all of them there was, there was no such thing as a special effects studio anymore there were people who didn't do optical effects uh, hollywood did you know they didn't have them anymore um and so he had to create it from new um and so he got all the people from cal arts and UCLA and all uh, Doug Trumbull's old people at worked for him, like John Dykstra. Um, and, and he, he brought together a brand new generation of people, of keen people who were willing to uh, explore and explode the boundaries of what was possible. And it just, it just paid off. It was just great. But George was encouraging everybody and everybody was encouraged by him. So I think that's, it's a mutual thing you know, of, of finding the right person to do the thing, but always finding the right person to encourage as well.
0: You know, one of the things that I was really impressed with what you were able to do with the, the interviews and the way that you were uh, combining all of these interviews and especially, you know, again, continuing to focus on George. When, you know, one of the things that he he talks about is the, the cynicism in Hollywood and how... And when you're telling these stories for children, it's so important to make them significant and to make them real and to make them earnest uh, because, you know, cynicism is easy. It's difficult to have hope and that so much of Star Wars is about finding a way to give children hope in the future to make them come out of the theater Hopeful for what can come next because they've they've found that in a story that helps root them in traditional um, morality of good versus evil, right and wrong and all of these things. And, and, you know, I think that's one of the things that makes, you know, Star Wars so special. And it's because, like you mentioned way back there in the beginning, George roots this in mythology he roots this in something much bigger than just the, um, uh, how to put this, you know, the spirit of the age, right? He roots this in the traditions of all of humanity, and that's what makes Star Wars so relevant yesterday, today, and forever. is Is because it's not just something that that. Um, we can say, "Oh, well, that just references this. That just references this, um, and that puts it specifically in one time period. It is timeless, and and I think it's George's ability to make this um, s- sincere, and in fact, um, makes me think of Donner with for, for similitude uh, for Superman. I think that's what George was able to capitalize um, with Star Wars, and that's what makes this." so special
1: yeah so what you're saying is um george was trying to give uh the audience a new hope is that what you're saying (laughs) yes yes very much yes (laughs) okay so um i think uh, what's interesting just from that age from that period is that um you have I, i think this is this was if you like the light bulb moment that george got on american graffiti that even when he was doing promotion on American Graffiti, um, that he um, and that he he hadn't realised that how connected the teenagers had become to the movie, um, right. and that it showed them it reflected their life, an honest depiction of their life, um, and their hopes, dreams, aspirations, and their fears um, of of moving from. Uh, adolescence into adulthood uh, and what the future may hold for them. Um, And George wanted to give them uh, a positive story. Then it was uh, Rocky also came out um, in 75. Uh, That was also a very positive um, movie at the time. Uh, And then Star Wars. Um, So, during that period it was a very depressing time there weren't that very weren 't very many movies that had a positive uh, view on the world of showing you a way out or a way forward and i think i always think of um uh, the believe it or not the ewoks um because a lot of people um you know they're not the ewoks um they're not fans of them uh, they think they're little cuddly bears or whatever. But if you think about it, the the scenes in uh, Return of the Jedi uh, where you see Han, Leah, Luke, uh, Chewbacca, C-3PO, R2-D2 all together um, in, uh, in the Ewok village. Um, and it's the first time in all three movies that you get a sense of community a sense of downtime, a sense of family, right? Where you see all ages, you see um, um, you see baby walks as well as male and female, as well as old ones. Mm-hmm. Um, you see that all connected um, in, one, uh, in one environment, right? Because when you fight for something, you have to have something to fight for. It's not about fighting against the emperor or against the empire it's fighting for that ewok community and that ewok community understand that that's why they stand up against the stormtroopers that's why they believe in these myths and legends that c3po you know tells them about their adventures of luke skywalker and everybody else um and uh, and that's that's the, that's the message of the movie. It's not what you're fighting against. It's what you're fighting for. And it's the same with Luke. Luke in the end, what is he fighting for? Right. He's fighting for his father. Right. He's not fighting to defeat the Emperor. He's fighting for his father, Anakin Skywalker, to return, to become a Jedi again. Yeah. That's why it's called Return of the Jedi. So, so this is, this is the important. This is what it's all about, and this is the uh, this is the uh, the message that George is 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 trying to uh, to give us. Is not that people are evil, but that people are redeemable. Yeah, that people can make bad decisions in their lives, right? But they're never totally evil. They can be redeemed, and they can be shown back to the to the light side. And how do you do that? You make Star Wars in order to tell that story.
0: Well, and that's something that I think is one of the things I I so adore about Star Wars is the fact that, you know, that is George's message of of redemption, you know, and and I think that is something that is really lost um, in so much of our society today. And it, it makes the message so much more important now, which is that. People should be given the opportunity to be redeemed. You know, that just because you made a mistake uh, doesn't mean that you should be cut off forever. Like it. And I think that's something that's so important in this whole idea of, you know, um, having the ability to move somebody from, you know, and George even says it in one of the interviews that you quoted um, when he's talking to Kasdan. And they're arguing back and forth about Kazan wanting this to be kind of more cynical. And George saying, no, this this really is about this whole idea of which, you know, all of these religions speak to. And this is why we hold to them is that there is an opportunity for redemption to be had, even if you are space Hitler. Right. You should have the opportunity to turn around and 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 find forgiveness and i think there is something so beautiful and so powerful about that especially in a world we live in today and it's amazing how star wars's message has become even more potent than maybe it even was then and, and that's what makes this so special yeah
1: well it's it's universal and it's timeless um, which means that not, not yes, that it's yes. not out of time but it's always in time uh, it's it's always relevant i think um what was interesting about that movie is that uh, richard markland completely got it he completely understood what yes. what, what yes. lucas was about i think he's a bit underrated and it would have been you know sadly he 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 passed away young and it would have been fascinating to see what he would have um, produced in the future but he completely understood that this was a, a fairy tale and uh, it's it's interesting that story conference if you uh, if you read it closely, you, you, you'll see that Markand makes some great uh, suggestions, which George immediately pounces upon. Like, for example, originally um, they, they were split up, so that Princess Leia was on uh, the moon of Endor, right, um, and uh, and she was basically leading that attack in order to break down communications you know, in order to destroy Haber Adaddon, which is turned out to be Kurusat later on. Um and Marquand says, no, she's got to she's got to be there to want to save her friend Han, you know, the guy that she's in love with. It doesn't make sense, you know. And Lucas immediately says, Yeah, you you're right. You know, this is you know, we've got to change that. So that um um, you know, Marquand was, you know, he was really switched on. And that was one of the you know, as you as, as you do you know you do a lot of research you read a lot of interviews and um, you know you, you you find out that there are some people who are you know really with george and uh, a markand really was uh, and and that was a nice thing to discover yeah. but yes people are redeemable um you know george doesn't he uh, described the force you know the light side the dark side is not like a, a zero one it's not a digital universe you know, it's, it's, it's more like a, a meter that you, you know, it's very easy, you know, to pop up into the dark side. You know, you get a, um, you get an email, you know, and it really riles you, really irks you. Right. If you, you know, it turns you to the dark side, you can send a reply straight away. Right. And it just perpetuates that idea of, you know, of, of the dark side of, of, of just, Accumulating and going back and forth, but if you take a moment back, right, and review it, and come back with something that's positive and more light, right, then you, then you, you're more likely to become go back to the to the light side of the force or do something positive, and in, in turn that situation into something that's more pos, uh, positive and understandable, and that brings it back to the light side. So, um you know so it's you know everybody you know fights to stay in the light side you know it it's not it's not an either or situation
0: yeah i think um that's something that i really liked about you know george you know talking um about the force and and i think that's something that was so interesting to me is you know you were mentioning earlier one of the things that george is doing here is that he has these concepts and ideas running around in his brain, and part of this whole process is is the refining process, you know, for him of of, of finding a way that makes all of this uh, work. Sure. And you know, with um, the the force there him continuing to refine that and refine that and refine that. And obviously that's a process that happens, you know, throughout the original trilogy. And then it, it continues on into to the prequels, you know, I mean, even in the, in the interview you do with him, you know, he, he talks a little bit about this idea of chlorians and everything, which sure. is, you know, just, a, it's such a fascinating thing uh, to me because um, it bring, it, it merges, you know, science and religion together in many ways. And so, uh, but the, the whole idea of, for George, you know what makes um the the good side of the force good is that it is something that is selfless and how that selflessness is tied so much into those classic ideas of doing to others, you know, um and that kind of thing where he's he's drilling into the keys of the best of humanity. And then trying to portray that on screen. And again, this all comes down to the fact that he sees that children are missing something. Um, You know, he even talks about that in the Star Wars interviews books, you know, that it's all about the good side and the light side and that life generally goes better when you follow the good, you know, and he's trying to portray this to children. And I think. You know that's something that I really appreciated about your interviews with him, and then combining those with all the other interviews that you're using to create this full story of 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 George's thought process. I think that was really special. Thank you. Um, now, I really appreciated too is that the way that you combined these interviews with um, older interviews with Marquand, and I think you really redeemed him in the eyes of myself, and I think you will for many um, Star Wars fans is that. Um, he completely understood what his role was in, in this movie. Um, and George understood what his role was in this movie. And and them working together, they actually, I think, work so well in concert together. And like you said, they help create what we know as Return of the Jedi. Because the thing I was most struck by was how difficult this was for them, um, Return of the Jedi, yeah. and, and coming up with the right story because you know the 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 middle structure is easier for George I felt like it it felt like the easiest part of the story for him to come up with but the last part how to wrap all this up you know that's difficult um and and in many ways George took the easier route in the sense that or in the harder route excuse me because he was not afraid to um go positive where most people want to go negative. And I think that's the biggest influence that George uh, and Marquand really have on Return of the Jedi is that they steer it into the way in which many people might find kitschy or childish. But no, that's the whole point of Star Wars is to end w- on a high.
1: Yeah, I think that the, um, it is supposed to be for 12 year olds. <laughs> you you've got to yes. remember. Um, you know when you're, you know the the column tweenies, do they now? I don't know. Um, yeah, <laughs> but the um, but but that idea of you starting your journey into adolescence, where you're learning about um, how to deal with people that are outside of the people that you grew up with, that are outside of your family. Um, how do you interact with them? Um, what sort of world is it? out there well it's a harsh world it's an unforgiving world um uh, but you've got to ally yourself with people who are positive and good and helpful and uh, you've, you've got to learn to recognize them and um, and then you've got to understand that everybody is is different and um, yeah you were saying about the uh, selfless and the selfish i mean george uh it explains that through the characters. So you've got Princess Leia, who's completely selfless. She's she's working for the uh, for the Republic. Um, she's working for everybody and not for herself. Um, whereas Han Solo is the the opposite. You know, I mean, he's not entirely the opposite, but but he is essentially working for himself. And for uh, and for chewy um they're surviving, they're getting by, and they're doing things maybe they didn't want to do, but they've done them anyway um you know to to survive and get by so they're being very selfish because they're only thinking of of themselves, and through the course of the story, both characters they meet in the middle, you know, so that layers begins to think about herself and her feelings and what. Um, uh what she wants personally from her life. And, uh, and Han, you know, he, he realizes at the beginning, at the end of the, um, A New Hope, Star Wars. Um, he, he realizes that he's made a connection to his friends with, with Luke. And um, he doesn't want to, to let him down. So he comes out and helps him at the end. But it's only later on in, um, in, in Jedi you know when you see them when he when he actually volunteers for the mission to endor you know that's his first really selfless act for the benefit of all um and and that's his transformation and so and so the joining of those two characters of Leia and han is is really quite natural because they're both uh, both learning from each other um you know in the same way that luke is learning he's learning from different mentors um so if you like Leah and han already more adult if you like in their development uh, and luke is is young and he needs uh, he needs mentors people to help him on his hero's journey to understanding and of course um he's got ben kenobi uh, with the force and he's got uh, yoda um and he's learning from, Luke is learning from his uh, experience, uh, from his life experience. Uh, and it takes a long, long time um, for him to, to be educated and to learn um, uh, And the, until he reaches the point. Now, where George tries to confuse us um, by color coding uh, Luke's uh, clothing. So at the beginning, it's organic. It's very light. (laughs) Yes, I love this. In the second second one, it's gray, you know, being morally ambiguous, right? And in the third one, it's black, you know, and it's it's leading to the idea of, you know, that Luke could go to the dark side, you know, he could be tempted. Um, uh, And that's a subconscious psychological thing that George had planned, you know, in order to color code uh, the costuming. Um, but then, and at the last moment, when when Luke, when Vader uses the, the idea of, well, I'll kill you, and then I'll corrupt your sister, you know, and um, you know, and I'll use her, you know, in order to take over the, the 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 universe, you know, and it's when Luke gets very very angry, you know, and there is a real. Sense that maybe he will go over to the dark side. It is such a dramatic moment, Um, but Luke, you know, he realizes he comes back. Um, So these these character developments are, are very important to show that people can be angry, they can be selfish, they can be selfless. Um, But it's all about them finding balance in their lives. And that's the message for 12-year-olds. Even though they may not realize it on a conscious level, right, on a subconscious or unconscious level, the message is there. And that's how all myths and legends work. Um, You know, George understood that. And this is why he spent so much time changing the characters, changing the story, changing the plots, Until he found that right balance in order to tell that story, the story that he knew, right and understood, but perhaps others around him did not. Jumping the
0: timeline significantly, you know. So one of the things I'm I'm most fascinated about is this dichotomy between the the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy. Where in the prequel trilogy you have the Jedi who. Um, their fear has actually become attachment, and that fear leads them to um, actually uh, pulling back so much that they almost forget what it means to be a Jedi, which is to love unconditionally all. Um, Anakin even says that in in the, um, the the attack of the clones, and that fear actually leads them to not actually deal with the feelings that they have. They a lot of them just end up stuffing them down, and and honestly, the only one who can really handle it is. Um, you see, throughout the Clone Wars, was Obi Wan Kenobi kind of dealing with what it meant to fall in love and all of that. But it's it almost seems as I was reading this book and and listening to George talk uh, about things is how you know Luke is able to figure out the way that the Jedi did it in the past, which is th- what it means to love unselfishly mm-hmm. um, and to allow love um, to affect your. Your mindset and your understanding of somebody else in a way that leads towards redemption. And that's the key for Luke, which is that he has been able to find the way to allow uh, love to be unselfish and to be the beauty that we want it to be and that we struggle with as humans to have. Um to not possess, but to allow f- something to move organically in a way that you know where he's able to take the love that Vader has for him and and move it towards one of redemption. And I think that's the beauty of Star Wars, too, is that it shows us what unconditional love rightly used looks like, and that's the key of of Luke as opposed to doing that thing that Yoda and Obi-Wan can't see at that moment. Um and that's the key of of the character of Luke Skywalker for the original trilogy and, and for you know for George in the sense of of wrapping up what would become this six part, you know, opera. Yeah.
1: I, I think you're right. Luke discovers the answer that Anakin couldn't find. And it's right. And this is the the idea of, of growing up. Um, because it is about growing up, and it's accepting um, death, it's the it, accepting the end of things. So, uh, so at the very beginning, we see the death of uh, Uncle Owen and uh, Aunt Beru, uh, which sets Luke off on his um, uh, his heroic journey because he ha- he has to leave home. He always talks about leaving home, but never does. So, him as the hero, he has to leave on his heroic journey and uh, and that death is is very shocking as are all the other deaths you know the death of the jawas uh, etc and the the guys in the cantina having their arm cut off um you know there's a lot of you know violence all of a sudden in his life and there's the, right and um, uh, and then we get to the death of obi-wan kenobi um that he cannot Except, and how does he respond to it? He responds immediately by saying no and firing back. You know, it's it's sort of like it's just an instinctual. uh, Whereas before, there was nothing he could do about it. um, Now he's firing back. He's starting to do um, things. He swung over a chasm. He saved the princess. He's, you know, he's he's gone in all these uh, this horrible garbage place. You know, it's it's all. his life is completely changed. He's doing things that he wouldn't ordinarily do, and he's learning about the Force. Uh, he's gaining confidence, and and then the other significant death is is the death of Yoda, you know, and that's the death that he accepts. He understands that it's the natural of order. By that time, he's understood that it's the natural order of things to to accept death for what it is. That's a natural part of of life and it's a natural part of growing up it's difficult and it's tough but but that's what you have to have to accept and um and i think that luke's journey um is is significant because as you say it's a journey that the the jedis in the in the prequel tr- trilogy perhaps didn't uh, understand or accept in the same way that luke does so I think that uh, personally, you know, um, this is me speaking, not George or anybody, um, uh, I think that that's that Luke is, if you like, the next generation um, of Jedi to to understand the, the way forward, the way that perhaps the Jedi uh, in the previous generation didn't. But this is the way life is. You're always learning and you're always progressing. Um you know and and, and that's uh, that's another message from it in that society and individuals can uh, hopefully learn from their from the mistakes and, and what happened in the past
0: yeah i really it, it's just something that's so fascinating to me and and you know kind of coming full circle i think that's the thing that really um, jumps out to me um, about you getting the opportunity then to go back and and talk to george and and do all of this with the prequel trilogy and how George's you know um mind expands to filling in the the story and and how it all works together and so um one question i I really wanted to to ask you um in this was um, as we get uh, close to wrapping up here, what was the thing that you found the most surprising throughout this process? Um, Either from talking to George or just about the, uh, you know, the creating of the original trilogy um, that you didn't see coming.
1: Oh yeah! Oh gosh! Um, (laughs) Put me on the spot here. Um, Okay, well, uh, (laughs) that's why I get paid nothing to do this. Okay, (laughs) Uh, same here. (laughs) Um, Okay, so uh, all right. Well, there was a surprising thing that I didn't I didn't realize. So just from a technical point um when they're making the uh, on on a new hope on star wars um when they were doing the uh, the the vfx you've got the, they have to film each of the elements individually so they have to film millennium falcon x-wings the uh, star background the death star you know these are all separate elements Right, or separate images um, which they then have to make mats or shadows of and then they have to all put them together on on a single strip of film now i was really surprised at, um at how difficult that was <laughs> just physically um and uh, and they had to have this optical printer in order to put them all these different pieces together um which they which never worked Properly, uh, or there was always a a slight misalignment, which George would always spot. Mm -hmm. And that was the, that was the, for me, uh, I hadn't quite realized this. So when George, when I was going through all the original uh, takes of each of the elements, and then George would review all of these, and George would say, not okay, not okay, redone, redone. And often, often it was because Right, the optical printer. Um, they they had to find ways of improving and making it better, and that that was just technically the thing that surprised me the most. That the thing I'd always heard about the computer controlled camera, you know, the model making, the design, all these different elements, but the optical printer surprised me. So that was the that was the first thing, mm-hmm. and I I thought that was brilliant. I think it was. Bruce Nicholson, who who dealt with that. So um, kudos to him. right, So that was the first thing. And the the second thing is that it wasn't until I finished the book that I realized that that Star Wars had actually started me off on the job that I do now. So the last thing you do is always like the acknowledgements or dedication or, or whatever. And I was thinking back... And I realized that the very, very first film that I actually saw on my own uh, was Star Wars. It was the film, because normally when you're a kid, mm. um, you know, you go with, you, your parents tell you which movies to go see. Yeah, he, right. Yeah, I mean, for me, what was for you? Do, what did you say when you were a kid? What were the films that you saw with the parents, etc.?
0: Yeah, the earliest film in the theater I'm thinking of, um, as i actually seen it with my grandparents, and it was Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Yeah, actually. Yeah. For,
1: so, yeah. Yeah, for, for me, it was, uh, I remember Jungle Book and Fantasia, right? Those were the... Oh, wow, yeah, that's great. Those were the first two that I remember seeing. And, um, you know, and I would see James Bond with my dad. He would take me to see those, and, and there were other movies. But I remember I'd seen um, this... uh it was on the news in the, in the UK um, that there was this film coming out and I was having lunch. I must have been off school and because uh, I would have been 13. Um, and I saw this amazing movie, you know, with things moving so quickly, faster, spaceships moving more quickly than I'd ever seen before. And I thought, oh, I need to see that movie. And I spent, it didn't come out until, in the UK, until January the 29th, 1978, all right, uh, in my local cinema. Uh, and so I spent, from the time I saw it um, on television to the time that I actually, the very first day and the very first showing, I was there, what lining up for it. I spent all that time um, researching, looking in newspapers or magazines or wherever I could find, trying to find out more information about this movie. So I was researching about this movie. Um, And then when the movie came out, I was just blown away. And it was the first movie that I'd paid for myself with my own money, gone on my own, yeah, that I really wanted to see. Um, And, of course, that interest and that enthusiasm, I just told all the kids in school about it. I started my own magazine when I was 15, and I was talking all about Empire Strikes Back. And all the other movies and TV shows and comics that I loved. So I was expressing, if you like, my enthusiasm. Um, and that really is what Star Wars, if you like, what I found out was really that Star Wars started me off into the job and what I'm doing now. So if you like, that was the most surprising thing, even though that's probably not the answer you want. <laughs>
0: No, I, I, I think that's really a beautiful thing because what that brings it back to is what you were talking about at the beginning is, is that this was um, – you wanted to tell – in many ways, uh, I, I almost think you could call this book um, The Star Wars Archives – the George archives, because you wanted this to be very personal for George Lucas. And I think, sure. you know, that's one of the things that Star Wars has done that, um, you know, many franchises have been able to do, but there is something very special about Star Wars. And we each have a very personal story about how Star Wars has impacted our lives. And, you know, I remember being that kid who grew up in the generation where Star Wars was only seen on the small screen. Sure. And so there was something beautiful about that trailer for the special editions because that was my generation. And, you know, but star Wars itself had inspired me to write my first really bad fan fiction (laughs) and, um, became the thing that inspired me. Um, when it came to a lot of things in, in, in fandom and podcasting and all these things, you know, star Wars has been an impetus for all of that. And, but most beautifully i think is that star wars has and i'm i'm thinking about this because as we're recording it's it's may the 4th sure and um, so it's the unofficial official star wars day um and star wars has brought more than anything it's brought people to my life that have become as close as family and i think that's the beauty that i saw in your book was that so many of these people, no matter what else that they had done, their life will be defined by Star Wars, and that's okay because it's Star Wars. And it's something to be proud of to have to find your life. And in many ways, that's what George will always be remembered for. And, And yet it is a legacy to which he is so proud to have left because of what we got to in this interview we talked about the core messages of what star wars was and i i couldn't imagine um something better to be known for i mean it's just it's mind-boggling but you know it it's something that star wars has had had this influence on your life on my life on everybody's life listening um and it's been i think a positive influence and 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 that kind of positivity was exactly what george wanted star wars to be which is something to give us hope and that's really beautiful
1: i completely agree with you uh, i mean i see the book as um you know it's 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 me uh, giving back you know to george you know um what he's given to me you know he started me off on this journey so me doing this book is me is my way of of paying uh, homage to him and to uh, and to give him his due, give him all the kudos that that he deserves. Coming back to it, you know, you
0: have gotten to do something that I had long to do, which is to sit down with George Lucas and, and talk to him about Star Wars. And I, I want to thank you for making that happen Um, um, and sharing it with us
1: (laughs) thank you paul i appreciate it so much i I did honestly i always think (laughs) well when i i make you know the books and the things that i do it's it's always because right that i've been lucky enough to see this and it's like i'm nudging you know i'm nudging you and say hey hey have a look at this look what Mm. i just found isn't this great isn't this awesome Mm -hmm. you know and that's that's my attitude Mm. to doing these books is saying and so I want to I want to include all the awesome things that uh, that you think are awesome. So that's what um, that, that's my you know my main motivation for for doing all this is to say is to nudge you and say hey, isn't this great?
0: Well, I definitely want to encourage any fans out there to find a way to pick up a copy of this book because um, I have thoroughly enjoyed it, and it's it's not just the book itself but it's what's inside the book. It's the presentation of the book. Um, my wife was making fun of me the other day. She said, um, I keep picturing every time you pick up this, and it is a massive book. She's like, I picture Hermione where she's like, I got this out of the library for a case of light reading, and she just slams it on the table. Um, but it is, a, I think what makes it beautiful is that it is really a celebration of everything that, um, you know, George gave us, and you did such a wonderful job putting it together. Thank you. Um I want to give you the opportunity to tell everybody, you know, where they can find you online, what projects you have worked on in the past that people should check out. And, of course, um, you know, what you've got coming up as we talked a little bit about at the beginning.
1: Okay. Well, um, you can reach me. Twitter is normally the thing I use most. So that's at Kershed, at uh, K-E-R-S-H-E-D. Come follow me. I do a, a, a daily Star Wars clipping. You know that uh, to share the research of, of everything that I've, I've found over the years, I, previous books, James Bond archives, Charlie Chaplin archives, which I think is actually very similar in some cases to uh, to the Star Wars archives, in that it takes the voice of Charlie Chaplin through his life, and I have complete access to all his writings, all the things that weren't published, etc. Um, and the James Bond archives also, and that's. Different in that that's a, a family affair, and that's about the hundred and fifty.
0: Right, mm. that's about
1: one hundred and fifty, more than one hundred and fifty people, um, um, who who basically create a community voice about how they created uh, James Bond. So, uh, in in terms of recent projects, I've uh, just done a book with Sly Stallone on Rocky, um, uh, which is a very expensive book. A uh, limited edition signed by him. Um, and that's all about the Rocky saga. You know, and it's the story of, uh, of the Rocky character, a photography book. And also just coming out now in Europe and uh, uh, will be soon in, in the US is a book on Alfred Hitchcock, The Complete Films. And that's a, a, a smaller, very easy to pick up map. It's, 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 it's very light. You know, uh, no, <laughs> no, you don't need any big blonde uh, henchmen in order to carry like the James Bond book. Uh, you won't need the force <laughs> to lift it like the Star Wars book. Uh, this is a, a much smaller book, but that's six hundred and eighty pages. It's it's, it's, oh, that's it's great. a brick. So, um, but that's got all. It's an essay by me on Hitchcock at the beginning, and then all fifty three of his movies. Uh, are in there and and there's lots of other ah, stuff fantastic i've i've so many books i i I think i counted over 100 books or something so uh, i've been busy well
0: yeah it's fantastic i you know i was looking up your bibliography and there's just so much out there and um you know if you're like me uh, you know uh, now i'm gonna have to go pick up the, the james bond archives because that looks fantastic um and i'm a very big fan of that series um, so I'm I'm looking forward to checking that out, and of course, you know, as uh, you had mentioned, and we talked about at the beginning. You do have the prequel era coming out um, there next year. Yeah,
1: that'll be fall next year. We don't have an exact date, but okay, I've got okay. I've got to make it first. Well.
0: Paul, thank you so much for spending uh, Star Wars Day with us here at Aggressive Negotiations. Really appreciate the time. And um, again, thank you so much for your dedication in doing this, like you you mentioned, doing this for us uh, and giving us an insight um, and, and giving us an opportunity really to spend time with the maker.
1: Absolutely. My, my pleasure. May the fourth be with you.
0: Well, I hope that everyone listening really enjoyed that interview with Paul. I know I was blown away by his openness and just the, the book in general. More than anything, I hope that this encourages you to buy this book. It is a book worth having, uh, even if you have the other making of Star Wars books. This one is, I think, unique is the way Paul put it with him really focusing on the experience for Lucas and, and his thought process in making these films. So please do check it out. Uh, It's available wherever you buy books. Amazon is where I got it. So it's probably the best place to check out. Uh, you can find me all over the place doing podcasts but really just hit me up on Twitter at MattRushing02 and that will let you know where you can find me and of course please do follow John over on Kessel Junkie uh, on Twitter and you can find everything that John is doing as well and we want to th- say thank you so much for joining us uh, here on this very special episode of Aggressive Negotiations and Negotiations are closed Thank you.